There's one thing I love to hear, and that is the sound of children. Even if I don't see them, whether it's in Vietnam, or even in Holland, or in France, where I live, lovely. With a view over the eye in Amsterdam, a water near the central station, where boats are passing by, I'm meeting a man about a book that he published about his life, a very fascinating life. And in this next hour, we will hear how this life has evolved and why. Welcome, Boudewijn. From Wall Street to UNICEF in Africa, that's a huge change. Absolutely, and that is also what fascinated me about your life and the book that you wrote, A Destiny in the Making, that's the title of your book. Are you still in the making? Well, in a way, yes, but in a way, not at all. Because I have reached my destiny. I made part of it myself, and part was made by many people around me. I feel like a narrator with all these actors in the book. And maybe it's good to remind you why I changed from a lucrative banking career to UNICEF in Africa. That is a huge jump. Well, tell me. One is, and I call that the hinges on my door, that really triggered it. One is INSEAD, the Dutch business school in Fontainebleau. I was already quite international by my family upbringing, but I went to INSEAD for a whole year to get my MBA. That changed me completely. Multicultural school, we had, uh, for instance, marketing in German, and, and I was French, and I was English. It was the European school established after the uh, Rome, uh, Rome Accords to make the case that Europe should have a European business school. So that was one of them. The other one was Mexico. And I know you are a lot in uh, Latin America, but in those days, Mexico had huge debt problems. And I was a banker in Wall Street. It was not my, my job to work in Latin America, I did uh, European business for the bank, Societe Generale. But I noticed that Mexico was totally bankrupt. So what to do? There had to be workouts and uh, uh, debt relief. We had uh, debt programs, UNICEF, so that we would take on debt in banks. Banks would buy back the debt. It's a bit complicated to explain, but that was another trigger for me, remember, to leave banking altogether after 17 years. And that was a sacrifice of sorts because I had a very lucrative job. Banking was changing and bonuses went up. I had 17 years there, but I didn't need it. I gave it up. And so that was the second uh, trigger. And the third hinge on the door is, of course, UNICEF itself. And how that happened is very clear. UNICEF is for children and I was mostly interested in working for children other than my own and so why I, where did it come from yeah in a way you could say from Audrey Hepburn because she had gone through the same problems famine etc in the war in Holland and also the after effects until she went back to Belgium and had a whole different life 
So that the, the symbol that she is, the ambassador of the UNICEF, really reached your heart? Yes, and that has another anecdote. I can tell you that later with uh, Jim Grant, who was our... No, I want to hear it now. Oh, you want to hear it now. Okay, so one day I was with Jim Grant, our, our fantastic uh, executive director. There's a lot about him in the book. He um, took me in a car that was a UNICEF car of the UNICEF committee in Holland, in, in Den Haag. And so we sat next to each other. And he, he said to me, you know, I'm on the way to Geneva. And I'm so excited about it. He's telling me, this big boss, driving force of UNICEF at the time. So I listened. He said, I'm going to visit Audrey Hepburn. I said, oh, that is very nice. But why are you telling me this? Because we were very open with this man. He said, well, you know, Dutch connection. You're Dutch too. And I thought, you know, I'm driving to her. I'm so excited. I couldn't keep the secret. Okay, this, so, this is so nice. I was proud as a peacock. He said, well, don't tell anyone because nobody knows it at the headquarters. Okay. Only one or two people. Before we continue, because you, you uh, as a former banker, jumping to UNICEF, literally, I would say. Yeah. That's a huge, huge jump. It is a, it's a huge jump. And then working for UNICEF, which is focused on children. So my question is, how was Baudouin as a boy of, let's say, under 10 years old? Oh, well, then I lived in Holland. I went through the war and uh, we went through the famine, great famine of 44, 45. I remember that because I was born in 1940 and it made a deep impression on me. Uh, for instance, one of our goodwill ambassadors, I'll, I can come to that later, Audrey Hepburn, lived at that time also in Arnhem and very much loved by the Dutch. So we had something in common. She was seven years older than me. So in Holland, I was very attached to Holland, but I had left Holland already a while ago, so I, I thought, no, not in Holland. It was in 71, and then uh, uh, I must have been uh, 31. But I want to know a little bit more about the boy under 10. What kind of boy were you? Sporty, oh, uh, reading, uh, I music? I did a lot of reading. I already wrote in the Gooi en Eemlander about Holland, België, met Vaas Wilkes and uh, Abel Lenstra and those people. And my father got me in the paper little blurbs uh, and it's funny when I reread that that was under 10 then and we did mostly uh, a lot of sport outside most of the time outside uh, all outside never gym I didn't like gym at school but we had uh, you know matches I, I played field hockey and I loved that and lots of friends there And after the match, you know, you fall in love sometimes. That happens too, which is lovely, and so on. And then at 19, I went to Leiden University, did my law, which is a horrible study. But I, I thought, you remember your sports life in Holland? When you start, you want to win. That's it. And I say this to young people as well. So don't give up. Just do it. Get rid of the... Nah. Of, of all this and even including the law study that happened to me there as well the young boy came up and I finished it and I never practiced law but I went into banking so 
from a boy uh, living in freedom in the Netherlands, having a lot of friends, do, being sporty, then moving to the law yeah. study, and from the law study getting into banking. That's right. I got into banking because I'd finished INSEAD, and uh, in those days it was still a bit troublesome to find a post. We had excellent uh, students, colleagues who were much better than me. So they got the jobs and I went back to Holland briefly and then I, I left. That was my, my youth in Holland, well under 10, a lot of sport, a lot of friends. Uh, I grew up under favorable circumstances. But we had the famine, and after the war, it was 1945, life was not easy in Holland, because we were on rationing, uh, we had these uh, pink uh, slips at the supermarket, uh, it was tough. And my father was absolutely not, not wealthy by that time anymore. Uh, so, but we managed, and then by 1955, I was 15 then, uh, things started to look up, but it wasn't brilliant. And by the time I got to Leiden, 1959, uh, it was uh, still a short period after the war. But we lived such a fast life as young people that we didn't realize it. Because when I got to Leiden in '59, it, it was, uh, what, uh, 20, 20 years ago, and we were still in trouble after the war. So you don't realize time because you're young and you go only there. I can imagine that later in your career, we're jumping some decades later, when you worked for UNICEF and you were confronted with situations that children have to grow up in parts of the world, in, the, in your case, especially in the Western and Central Africa, that you reflected on your own life, the benefits, but maybe also some similarities? Very much so. When I saw malnutrition in Africa, I must have been malnourished as well. And you know, malnutrition works on the brain. Your brain goes haywire. But that is how it was. So that was there. And poverty, when you talk poverty, we had to be very careful to live all those years after the war. And only then things looked up. So there were comparisons with that. And also motivation. Is there any motivation to make that jump from a banker to UNICEF that you can relate to your childhood? Ah, uh, yeah, that's a very hard question. Um, I, I don't think it re that related to my childhood, honestly. No, it didn't. So it was a kind of a rational decision to say that this is the life I'm leading as a banker. It is not fulfilling me. I want to make a change. Since I had been educated modestly uh, after the war, I was not one of those people who was interested in making a lot of money. That was an underlying cause of jumping. And I said, I don't need that. I got banking offers from other banks, French banks, and they, they topped it up big. I declined the two that made major offers while I was working with the French bank. Well, who would do that? No, it was already in my mind to go. I had enough of it. But I don't want to give you a negative reason for, for leaving. The Dutch government had asked me to be a candidate for the United Nations. 
And I said, oh, that is great. I do that. And I did. And I uh, went to a trade organization and then uh, uh, some other organization. And I said, no, this is not it because you got a one-year contract. And that was not enough because I had a good job after all. So I was patient. I waited. And then there was a, then the Dutch uh, embassy in New York, the permanent uh, representation at the UN, they asked me to uh, be a candidate. You know, and you know why that was funny? Because 20 years before, in 1965, after I had studied, I went to BZ, uh, Buitenlandse Zaken, and they would then uh, have a, a class, a class, and you would become a diplomat. Well, I passed all the language tests, uh, and that, that didn't surprise me, because I read a lot of books in, in French and English already. And then um, I was turned down on psychiatrist uh, reasons. And I had to go to Utrecht, and I had to do tests, and they were so awful. And, I, you know, I, I, as a young man, resistance was building up. Then we had a cocktail, and they were definitely looking if I had polished shoes, if my tie was in the right place, and that sort of thing. And how, especially, I held my glass of wine. I was always used to holding it by the cup, not by the foot, and so that was also a mistake. And I knew that I did not feel at home with that crowd. So, when I was, was cancelled, it was fine with me. But when I got asked by the same people, well, other people, of course, at BZ, they, they asked me, and I had a very big laugh. It was sort of a revenge. Boudewijn, you mentioned the name of James Grant, the former executive director of UNICEF. A name that I've heard a lot said by people that worked for UNICEF and always with a smile, with a great warm memory. What kind of man was he and what was his influence on the development of UNICEF over the years? It was enormous, enormous. This was a great man and everybody like you uh, adores him still. He was appointed in 1981 and then almost immediately he got in trouble because he had so many plans and the board of directors could not really follow it. They were resisting him about certain things. And he also got in trouble. He might not have been appointed for a second term. And what was it then? He had a mission for children. He was a driver and he was extremely friendly to staff, very democratic, if you will. And he was then leading the pack. What did he do? He had a vision. He was a visionary. And he wanted children to live. At that time, there were 40,000 children a day that died. It was enormous, about 14 million children a year. And he said, this cannot stand. So he attacked. And then he found that there were five interventions that can save the life of a child. It was oral rehydration, he had these packs in his, in his jacket, and he would show this. He, he did it by convincing governments they wanted to 
have him there and listen to him, even dictators. And the dictators then finally, difficult to convince them, but he had an enormous convincing power. The other one was vaccination. And so he invented an acronym, and it was GOBI. T-O-B-I. GOBI. And when I was briefed before I met him, I said, Gobi, that's a desert. And so she said, no, no, Gobi is growth monitoring, oral rehydration, breastfeeding, and immunization. What remains then of that Gobi? Slowly, there was, there was a World Health Organization goal, health for all. And that should have been reached by 1990 or something like this. There was no way that WHO could reach that on its own because you needed to have a social mobilization drive, you know, the social mobilization, mobilize the people to come, get vaccinated, etc. Those are big communication campaigns. WHO is not a field business. They are in their offices and they know a lot about epidemic stuff, which is important. So we needed them, so we made a partnership with them. And so the road was open for UNICEF until 1990. What happened then? All the field offices, and I was by then uh, part of one of them in Mozambique, were asked to become goal-oriented, and by 1990 most should have reached the goal of 80% of immunization. Why 80%? because at 80% you have sort of an immune system for the herd. So that was okay. But in Africa, where I spent most of my life in UNICEF, this was not possible because Africa was very poor. It had no structure for vaccination, immunization, and so uh, trouble. And the little that they had was in a way, over time, destroyed by these polio campaigns, big campaigns, you know, come and get the immunization. But by the time, there were still a few African countries, like Cape Verde and Ghana, and one or two in East Africa, they reached 70%, which was major. And so they got congratulated. But then the problem was, how do you sustain that? Are we going to fund this eternally? You can't do that. But Africa, exception. But debt also, World Bank all started to give debts and stuff like that. We called that children in debt. Why? Because they have to repay it. Not us. We're fine. I retire, business finished. This is unfair. So he was on this very much. And by the way, when I got to UNICEF, that was a very big issue in adjustment with the human face. And he pushed that. That means that structural adjustment programs were, had to be with the human face. What does it mean? Not just, okay, you are going to limit your expenses, uh, reduce the budgets, everything cut, cut, cut. What about children? So we said, you have to take children into account. And there's a whole mechanism for this. And once again, he was successful. Another anecdote about him is beautiful, and it plays out 
what we see now in Gaza, but also in Ukraine. And that is that in Latin America, dear to your heart, he created corridors of peace. So actually he called it corridors of tranquility because peace is a very big word. And it was all over the press because we had a press machine later on, uh, Robert Cohn came to strengthen that, but it was massive and he loved it. He was himself the great communicator and, and, and crystal clear what he wanted, visionary, buff. And what else? One day, and 1990, by the way, was a very important year for UNICEF, but there was also education for all. I can also come to that, what that meant. So here comes the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And this is so important. The child has to be the center of life, you know, first call, etc. And also, of course, the interests of the child. That is number one. Okay, but that had to be drafted because we were called in, UNICEF, late in the game. The drafting was already going on with the Polish government and other partners. But they couldn't get it together. They turned to Jim Grant. Well, one year later, this was 1989, I believe. Anyway, it was signed a year later, then it was adopted with a huge majority in that year, 1990. And when Jim Grant, coming back to him now, there are many more things about him in there. He was dying, and it was January 95, and he called Bill Clinton. And he said, Bill, at least sign it, you. If you get it ratified, I hope so. Fight for it, please. And a few days later, he died. This is very emotional for all of UNICEF, and of course we knew. He signed. And that was already then the first step. So for you going there, knowing that there's this vision there, there's this idea behind it, mm. that must have been a huge motivation as well. It was a huge motivation. But once you went to the field offices in Africa, but also in New York, the, his staff and everything else, that was sometimes a bit bureaucratic and, and slow process. He didn't want any of this. For instance, when I was appointed, that is an interesting story, tidbit about him. He interviewed me, he, as the first one in UNICEF, and then he went two down the line, and there he stopped. Why? He was afraid that I would not get into UNICEF. He wanted to have me because I came from business. And he needed that. Why? Because they were a little bit disorganized all over the place in terms of yeah, pure business structure, if you will you know, and uh, results, and uh, where are our goals, and, you know, as if you are in business. Now, you can say, I'm against it, always people want to stay in the old sphere, but he, he drove it through like anything. It was beautiful. So, it, it was a nightmare, yes, to work on other levels, but he wanted me, he appointed me by executive order. Why? And I heard that later. He said, if I had not done it by executive order, I wasn't sure that more would be taken by staff. If I had organized interviews with personnel, then 
I'm sure that there would have been blockages because everybody wants an inside candidate. But I came from banking. It's blasphemy for some people. In no, I, I recognize that because I came from a oh, right. small private children's channel and moved to the public TV. And in the first year especially, hardly anyone wanted to talk to me. And they thought I had a disease or something. And if you have worked for the enemy, how can you be a good person? Yeah, no, absolutely. I had the same. And when I went to Africa, uh, nobody really knew where I was coming from. I was far away from New York. In New York, of course, I was the banker. Horrible. I wanted to get away from it. So then I got to Africa. And what, what, yeah, what did you do before? And I walked over that experience. I did say it, I'm sure, somewhere. But I tried to forget it as soon as possible. So many people in other field offices, I was just one of the back of the regional office because I was uh, you know, uh, uh, traveling in the region to help build up new offices. So then, of course, I saw all this, but nobody asked me what I did really before. And I thought, just as well. So for many years, I would say two or three years, I didn't say I had been a banker. And that was fine. I felt fine. I was quiet that way. Yeah. And only at the end of an assignment, I said, you know what I was? I was a banker in Wall Street. What? What? <laughs> so because they trained me to learn about programs, planning. Now, there was a lot to do in that part, huh? but programs that they knew something about. I can imagine that in the first years that you made that move from the bank world to UNICEF, sometimes your eyes must have popped up. Can you remember the moment that you really felt from a banker to become, now I'm, I'm really a worker inside UNICEF, now I really have this identity, I feel my place. My place. Yes, absolutely. It took a while. But they briefed me very well and I had to read a lot of documents and I started writing for UNICEF board papers. Because well, the first year you were trained, wasn't it? Well, you could say that. I was trained in going to offices. I was always tagging on to people who knew a lot about it. So I learned fast about programming, how they do it. And I would say feeling at home in programming. And I was working with, with the senior planning officer and I was his... Uh, Underling, shall we say. So they prepared you because of, of the work and the special needs that UNICEF has. Definitely. I come back to Jim Grant. Uh, he sent me there. I was, uh, oh, that was executive order. I go to Mozambique. Every assignment that I got was executive order. I never went through the system. As the chapter in your book has the name field. So then you went literally into the field. Yeah, that's how we call it. Because you go out of the capital and then you visit projects. Because I wanted to see what people were doing. Also, uh, one of your chapters is about sports. This reminds me of Liberian uh, child soldiers. Uh, those are people, they were in deep trouble. And so I went to see them and I visited them and I said, okay, Next Saturday, they said, we have a, a football game. And I said, oh, well, it's very hot there and very humid. And he said, well, come. They asked me. And the UNICEF officer 
I said, yeah, no, 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 we will come back because I was there for a whole week. So we went back. I had a whole crate of Coca-Cola with me and some good stuff, you know, to make it fun for them after the match. So we started playing and playing and it was a great match. I was almost 60 by that time. I held out, but for about 15 minutes, it was so hot. And I always played sports with people in Maputo, kids on the beach and everything. I loved doing that. But that heat, no. So I had to stop. So I waited for them. And then we got to chat with them. And they were living, they were actually prisoners. Prisoners of war. The reason why I ask this is that you name football and of course other sports too. But it's an incredible universal language. It's an incredible yes. way of connecting with people and getting people out of their bad situations into a complete new experience. Definitely. And with the child soldiers, they were prisoners of war. So there was a wall and they did not know what happened at the other side of the wall. But they were not let out. So they couldn't connect with the communities with, let's say, football. They wanted to play football matches, etc. And that was a no-no. They couldn't, because now they are free and now everything is fine, I'm sure. So they asked the UNICEF project officer and me, they wanted to have a uh, transistor shortwave radio. So then on the spot, uh, she decided, and I, of course, I convinced her very much that they should have that. Because how can you de deprive uh, child soldiers who are, in effect, you treat them as prisoners of war, and not to give uh, access to knowledge of what's happening where their parents live. And that I found, for child rights, not a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. Very tough. Yeah. Very tough. You're listening to Boudewijn Moore, a former banker who jumped over to UNICEF, traveled the world and tells a lot of stories about the development that he witnessed, that he participated in. I was a little girl in school and on the 1st of May the teacher had them make flagpoles. Now, the 1st of May is also the International Socialist anniversary. But apparently this teacher, and now you talk in the time that I was there, it was fully communist and it was there. And she drew a Christmas card. And that took the road to headquarters in New York. It is in the book, but unbelievable. And that became the first Christmas card, calling card, greeting card, no matter how you want to call it, of UNICEF. That's the beginning. It's a long time ago. And then later on, the national committees were formed. The first one was, I think, the United States, very quickly. And then it, it snowballed. Even Germany, West Germany, uh, got uh, its um, national committee. And those were private organizations. And they raised funds for UNICEF, and they gave tremendous visibility in the various uh, industrialized countries and also the communist countries. So there was a huge step forward to, on a local level, organize and involve people in the development of their own children in their nation. Yeah, absolutely. And so if you take the example of Holland, they did great things in my time because it was my role 
at the time in, in Geneva, when I was not yet in Africa, I had Dutch committee, German, uh, Scandinavia, uh, a bunch of uh, committees. So I came to Holland a lot. The things they did for children and with children is phenomenal. For instance, I'll give one example. They did swimming for UNICEF. And the uh, executive director of the committee once took me there. So we were, I don't know, I think it was in Utrecht, in this big space of water inside. And they were diving and they had fun. And they raced with that, they raised funds at the same time. But they had so much fun. And that was called Swimming for UNICEF. It was a campaign also for fundraising. So here, raising funds and having fun. And supportive to other countries, because yes. that is what the national committees do. They raise the money to support countries that are in need, in, in urgent need, for instance. When I joined uh, UNICEF, that uh, was in Geneva, as I said, then the UNICEF committees did about 30% of, but our 30%, we had only 300 million in revenues, UNICEF. And so they have 30%. And they kept that 30%, but it went up and up and up and up. And Jim Grant's goal was to get a billion, but also by 1990. Everything was 1990. So I, I thought he'll never make that because it was going up very slowly. But he wanted me also to develop a business plan with European business and get funds directly from these companies, which I did. So this was beautiful, beautiful. And was the one billion reached? It was reached in 1990. I mean, come on now. What a vision. Yes. And now going from 1 billion in 1990 by the time I left it was something like 15 billion dollars and it's still yeah needed a lot yeah and and the national committees they had something like 300 million they also had a group that met then once a year uh, and and discussed and exchanged views how do you do fundraising how do you do your development education they did that too that is a very interesting thing because the finnish National Committee, also quite old already, invented already in early days development education. What is that? That is education in schools to get the children in school more to learn about development. And that has become such a great program. It was part of communication, you know, big communication thing. And, and the Finns gave pointers how to do it. So it was school materials, but it was information, exchanges, you name it, it's in the book. And it was, of course, copied by other Sweden, Norway, and of course it trickled down to the south. And the Netherlands was also quite early in the game with this. So they had that cooperation, which makes them stronger. And now, the stronger they get, the more power they'll have within UNICEF. That was the interesting point, because as they got so powerful, they were much more a part, integral part, I would almost say, with UNICEF headquarters. So they got all the information, they became part of the UNICEF board, and not as observers, huh? They were part of the delegations. For instance, the Dutch, they were always there, they were also part of the board. But in their delegation, there was always one from UNICEF. Why? 
because they had the institutional memory. So they knew everything. But not these diplomats who were there because they move on after four years. Yeah. And that was so beautiful. Yeah. And then you had NGOs like you know, the big international ones and they were all associated themselves with UNICEF. So they were allowed to attend, but they were observers. But it gave them a lot of advantages of information, board papers, policies, what have you. And I think that if there's one area worldwide where independent organizations are very well connected, it is often in the area of children. Yes, and, and also in the, in the private sector area as well. But also, for instance, in media, in children's television, the network, international network of children's television producers and makers is very intense, very close. And some committees were good in one thing, but not in the other. For instance, the Italian committee, which I love, they were so good. They had often the Vatican, so they could mobilize the Pope, but they have done that. And they, they, they did other things, which was informational hype, balloons and you name it. And so the visibility of UNICEF in Italy was enormous. Did they raise money? Not so much. But we had other interests. The Pope, for once, no? And ideas about how do you do it in terms of communication. So that is why you had these meetings once a year between the committees. So a lot of diversity also among the members. Yes, and, and in that sense there was no competition. You, know? you could say, okay, the Germans had an enormous committee, lots of money, they could, they could really do everything. But that is fine, let them do uh, what they are good at. They had the first goodwill ambassador, for instance, and that was a national one, like Paul van Vliet. That was an actor, and, and uh, he did extremely well for 25 years. They usually stayed a long time. And so they also had institutional memory yeah. of what happened before, which they could give to the young in the national committees. We're listening to a lot of stories that Boudewijn Moore is adding to the book that you wrote, A Destiny in the Making. There's one more question that I wanted to ask you, which is one of the final chapters in the book is about the demining, when oh. you were involved in, in that part, and which is, of course, a very current subject, thinking of Eastern Ukraine, for instance. Yes, I'm very glad you asked that question. First of all, demining was totally outside the mandate of UNICEF. Totally. Yet, we said, let's do it. How did that come about? Well, UNDP and some uh, D-miners were already being trained and to get the mines out, there were about one million of them, as an estimate. And uh, I had walked through that minefield. It was a very strange experience, very dangerous too. Huh? And so I went on a field trip in the weather Renamo, uh, the, the rebels, can you say, freedom fighters, they had their bases there. And so I went there and I said, gee, I see nice structure here, nice health post, all bunko stuff, and, and then there is that, that school. Why don't you use it? And there's a lake, so maybe women are doing agriculture there? They said, no. First of all, around the lake, it's mined. So women, no longer. Then the health all mined, and next to it were just shaky structures. 
not a tent, but some wood of the of the jungle. It was, it was terrible. And there we had before we had what we call area-based projects. That is, you combine projects, activities into regional uh, specific area, and then you say, okay, that is then development. That is what we had at the time there. No more. So then, in the end, I said, this cannot stand. We must demine around the good structures, and we must demine the lake. So I got an interview in the Sunday paper, Domingo, because I had gone public within the donor community. I said, we have to demine. That was picked up by Domingo, and it was a very good interview. All of that in, in that article is true. Next morning, there is a headline, Au représentante Barbara Moore, by Desminage Engagard and Vauvert Deminage. And I was shocked because I had not checked it with my rep. So I walked with that interview in the paper, whole page, into his office. And I say, what do we think of it, uh, shop? But I was interviewed uh, last week, and uh, I think we should do this. He looks, he reads a bit, he said, go ahead. That is how he was. So I walked out. But now the money. I had no money. But I had contacts with the bilateral donors. Denmark, all these, all these countries of, from the West. So I lobbied because I had to go to cocktail parties and I said, okay, we are going to do this, but I have no money. Do you have? No, 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 maybe end of the year, which was only a few weeks away. Then I get a phone call from Denmark and they say, Baudouin, we have leftover funds at the end of the year. If you haven't spent it, if you spend it quickly, you can still keep it to make a long story short. So they said, we have $360,000, which was huge. You could really demine that whole area that I had in mind, plus some more. It's also a great story about, you must have felt that you have the space to do this, to say yeah. this, and maybe even in the back of your mind, it was the strategy to push forward your agenda. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And what was so interesting, was that everybody started talking about it, including the French school in Maputo, in Mozambique. And they developed a project on mining. And so that consisted of uh, awareness, and they want to have their own awareness that, that you know how dangerous mines are. That was a very big program by everybody in the school. And so they said, can you open this conference in it's in about two weeks so what I then did I got landmines from UNDP and I got uh, other stuff very you know these things that explode it's horrible and I had examples so I had made an exhibit in a room in the school and I said okay I'm going to tell you now all about landmines and I did because I was fully briefed by UNDP even trained I had walked in minefields and so I knew what this was all about. And every day, people killed still. And so I opened it. It lasted the whole morning. So it wasn't an opening. You had just to open it. You know, it is nice that what you're doing. And they couldn't stop. They had invited NGOs, like Halo Trust was a big one in demining, and Handicap International, working for handicapped people. They invited them to do sessions in the afternoon. That lasted two weeks. 
And they said, oh, Barbara, can you come and close it? Okay, that closing was short, but I stayed practically a whole afternoon. Why? They had made an exhibit also. So what are landmines, explosions, drawings, you name it. They had it there. It was fabulous. And it showed so well how terrible it is. At the same time, a convention was being drafted and it was going to be presented in Canada. A whole campaign to ban landmines. You couldn't buy them, you couldn't recycle them, you couldn't have all of this and you couldn't stock them and certainly not use them. And there were all these countries that ratified it in the end, except Israel and North Korea, South Korea, and the United States. And now, of course, we see all these wars. Another thing that, and I have not talked about that, that Jim Grant did, I keep coming back to him, because the man is throughout the book, you can almost say. He did years of tranquility. What was it? Because he wanted to get to children in countries at war. And it can only be done if you have days of tranquility. We did not speak about a ceasefire. The one I've done, I was there, was in South Sudan. You know, and we were in Lokichokyo, northern Kenya, and planes went in there to help out and, and get landmines away, etc. But at least we had these days of tranquility. That was the most important thing. Yeah. And we got the aid to them, also from Sudan to the south. But that country wanted to be independent, and it got its independence. In which African countries did you live? Oh, many. First of all, I should say, I know 36 African countries out of the 54. There were a few where I was uh, stationed. And uh, the first one was Côte d'Ivoire. I wanted to go to a French country. And my, since I knew nothing about development, absolutely zero, they sent me there. Why? Because I had some management experience in the private sector. So Grant, through executive order, sent me there. I said, no, well, that's fine because I spoke French. And so you see how important it is to master some languages. And for me, French and English are the most important ones. So I went there and, I, and it was total shock. And I said, but, but that's, that's not management here. And we made great improvements. So I could contribute. But did I know about development? No. But I learned fast. From Côte d'Ivoire to where? Then I was asked by uh, someone I knew already who had me, attracted me to uh, Abidjan when he was uh, going to uh, Mozambique. So a year later he was there in place. He said, uh, Baudouin, you must come here. I need you. Because by that time, by the time he left Abidjan, I knew quite a bit already about development and assisting country offices. So that was there. So I was qualified to go there. I couldn't believe it. Huh? After three years, four years, in, I was qualified to go there. Now I knew something about it, how it works, and where it doesn't work, because the support systems were also still weak. And even though I didn't have operations under me, I wanted to have programs and planning, because there was something to be done there as well, a lot. I felt more comfortable there. Well, Byron, a lot of stories that you're telling, it makes us curious to read the book because 
Bardouin is not only a great storyteller, but a great writer. And the book is full of details and in a very chronological order. And in this conversation, we jump through the book. One final question that I have is, if you look back at your career in UNICEF, what would be the first thing that comes in mind of the things that you have gone through, the emotions that you had, the successes that you celebrated? I think the activities we developed outside UNICEF mandate, and that was extremely emotional, as I have explained before. And I think the first thing I would think about, and still do, especially because we have so many wars around us all over the world, is demining. That has impressed me the most, and we played such a big role in it, physical role, and uh, I don't want to say it, it made me depressed, but today it reminds me of so many things happening around us. Well, it shows also that all the things that you did and that you went through, the initiatives that you took, the projects that you served, are still needed. Definitely. And if you take education, you remember there was that education goal 1990. Education for all, health for all, you name it. Education was not really a UNICEF program. But there was UNESCO, did a good job, but some more was needed. So UNDP became active, UNICEF and UNESCO and UNFPA, I believe. This was important. And in education, we took quite a few initiatives ourselves. And that was in Sao Tome and Principe, two islands about 400 nautical kilometers or miles south of Nigeria. And those are two beautiful islands with enormous poverty and they had practically no education. Children lived on rosas, those are big, big uh, farms, uh, coffee and uh, cocoa. Those were the big things. And they were so poor you cannot imagine. It's the greatest poverty I've seen in those days. So there, what did we do? We developed classrooms in a school that existed already, but it was about 30 kilometers to the south. It was the end of the island, the main island, Sao Tome. You know how long it took to drive the 30 kilometers? It took two hours, if not more. So these children never ever came to Sao Tome, the capital, for which I brought them to Sao Tome. So we developed classrooms in maternal schools. They had already three classes, but they had no school materials, a non-functioning school, you can say. We changed all that. So we built additional classrooms, and uh, two or three. So we had four, five, and uh, sixth grade we would do another year. So then they would have a full primary school. And these children were awfully happy, and we did it in good time. In those days, we still built schools. That was not our mandate, but we did it anyway in the beginning of my Mozambique days. And I thought to my, by myself, these kids have never been in Sao Tome, the capital. So I said, okay, we are going to organize this. So at, with the local uh, authorities, I said, I'm going to organize this. I had nothing planned with the presidency, a small island, huh? uh, 150,000 people live there. That's not the end of the world. So I said, this is what I will do. I'll bring all of them, 
about 50 children in a bus. And they were happy. I see them arriving still. I can still see this bus coming in Sao Tome. And I knew they'd been on the way for two hours. So we were there to receive them. And what did I organize? It's nice to know. We had two sessions. We had a session on the history of UNICEF. I did that. And a colleague would do either education and health detail. So there was one on program, and I did the history and the United Nations, and telling it in a simple way. They were about 10, 12 years old. And then we had a, um, a film we had made in, in the Middle East, and that was called Sarah. And Sarah was a character, a girl wanted to go to school, and there was film, and I had it in Portuguese so they could follow it, and I showed them that film. And the story is, the child wants to go to school, has been in school, but then she was 12, and then the parents said, no more. And that's a no-no for UNICEF. So there was somebody in communication who developed this with UNICEF. And it became a great success. So I got the Portuguese film. But not only this, I also got the booklet, you know, the, with the uh, drawings. And so they got that as well at the end. So they sat there on the floor, because I had no chairs for children. They'd sit on the floor. And they were in awe. And then they all got, for the school, a few of these books to read it again. And then I said, now we're going to make a bus tour. And I'm going to show you the palace of the president. They get all in the bus. And we make a whole tour of Sao Tome, which is lovely to do. There's a big boulevard, and it goes down the hill, up the hill. Then you did it all. Huh? That was what it is. And then I said... We are going to end at the presidential palace. So we get there, and we look at, at this it's a pinkish Portuguese building. Not very nice, but some kids were ready to jump over the fence because there's not much security there, and that was so much fun to see. So they looked and looked and looked, and I said, unfortunately, we cannot go in with all the kids. It's impossible. It would be nice if you met the president. This I could not organize, unfortunately. But I had done my deal. They saw the capital, and that was good enough. After that, they climbed all in the bus, and they were hilarious. I've never seen such happy children. And that's, of course, a huge motivation. Oh, uh, yes, I, I would say probably. I haven't followed it anymore. It was closed before leaving, but I'm sure it motivated them. And they got new classrooms. But what's the problem? You can build a school. And they were doing mapping at the time. So they knew where these schools were. But that is, Jan Willem, that is not enough. Because you need to equip these schools. And you must make it consistent. And that, that we did. We equipped the school with furniture. And we gave school materials. And we also paid for a while for the teachers because Sao Tome was a very poor country. So we had to bridge that for them. And we did. I'm sure they were extremely motivated to get better grades and, and better teachers. And I often sat in classrooms with the children because there's one thing I love to hear, and that is the sound of children. Even if I don't see them, whether it's in Vietnam or, or even in, in Holland, and you hear them coming out, or, or in France, where I live, lovely. That is a happiness as well. Garcia Lorca has a very great poem about it, 
and it says, Cuando muerto, dejad el balcón abierto. And that is so beautiful because he wants to feel the uh, orange trees, the naranjas, and he wants to hear the sound of children. That's beautiful, Bahrain. That's a great ending of our conversation here. Let's walk a little bit more along yeah. the A here in Amsterdam. Thank you for your stories. Good luck with the book. Thank you. A Destiny in the Making. Boudewijn Moore. Thank you. Thank you.